Well, we're making our way along in the Shorter Catechism. Quite a few weeks ago, we saw how God created us in His own image and blessed us by giving us dominion over the earth. We, that is our first parents, were at that time both holy and happy. But then we saw in our studies how we did not continue in that wonderful condition in which God had placed us. What a foolish thing. Adam and Eve fell by eating the forbidden fruit. The guilt and rebellion spread to the whole human family, to all those that were born of them. Question 17 describes this as our falling into an estate of sin and misery. We became very sinful and very guilty. Very guilty and very rebellious. The misery or unhappiness was the result of God's punishment of us. This problem is a very serious one. With question 20, though, we saw that the grace of God that saves his people from their sins was presented to us. So let's confess this together, question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God, having out of his good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And with question 21, which we looked at last week, we looked at who the Redeemer is. Question 21, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Sorry, I added a word there. Um, I stress to you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only redeemer of God's elect. The Bible tells us that he was the one who was chosen and appointed by God to save sinners. So he's one of a kind. No one else was chosen. He is emphatically declared in Scripture to be the only one multiple times in Scripture, as in, for example, Acts 4.12, where it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We looked at that last week. We saw that He alone is qualified to be our Redeemer. He is the one person from all eternity who is God, but who 2,000 years ago became man. He's the only one to be both God and man. But of course, when he became man, he in no way stopped being God because one cannot stop being God. If you're God, you're God forever. You're unchanging. But he became also man. And he will be both God and man for all eternity, as it says in the Catechism. He won't ever cease to be either God or man. He will be both God and man forever. So Jesus is one person with two entire distinct natures. 
the same individual who said, I thirst, also said, I was with the Father from the beginning. The same person who hung on the cross and was buried was at that very same time upholding all things by the word of his power. The world would have collapsed and and fallen into pieces if Christ had not been upholding it as the divine being that he is, even while he was in the grave in his human flesh. I showed you that it was necessary for our Redeemer to be both God and man in order that he might be qualified to save us. So this week with question 22, we're given, to be, we're given a problem to be solved. If Christ, who is always God the Son, had to become also man, how could that be done? Now you could say, it's not our problem. <laughs> and fortunately it wasn't. It was something that God figured out how to do. But that we know about this is important. Why? Because God has revealed it to us. If he didn't reveal it to us, we'd say, we don't need to know about that. But he has told us how he who is eternally God became also man. And it's because it is necessary for us in, in our sanctification and our growth in grace and our understanding of God and what he's done to, to know these things. So let's recite question 22 together, which summarizes this. Uh, question 22, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. Now, as we explore this subject today, I want to begin by looking at three difficulties that were involved in the Son of God becoming man? I mean, how could he, who is God, become man? How could he do that? So we look at three requirements, is another way to say it, that had to be met in his becoming man when he is eternally God. Then we will look at how God brought it about as we look at what is required. Then we'll look at how God actually brought that about so that he did become flesh in a way that met all three of those, those requirements. And then we will look after that at how it helps us to know how God did this. I said that this is revealed to us for a reason. So since God has revealed how Jesus became flesh, we will see that this is not unnecessary information. Okay, we'll look at it, it, how it helps us to know. So let's begin with the first point. What were the difficulties that had to be overcome for the Son of God to become man? What were the requirements that had to be met? First requirement, that the one who is to become a man was already a person. Well, it's not exactly stated as a requirement, but that this, this one, he was already an existing person who had to then become man. Because everyone else, when they become a, a, a being, a, a human being, then they become a person and a body and soul. They, they have all of that together. It all comes about at the same time. When a child is conceived, 
a new person is brought into existence. But here you have a person that already exists who's being brought into human flesh. You were not until the day that you were conceived. There is a a theory that says that there were a bunch of souls out there that are given bodies when it's time for them to have bodies, but that's a false false theory. Um, you, You were not until you were conceived, and then you became a living being. You became a whole, complete, new person made in the image of God. But the Son of God, being already a person with a divine nature, how could he then obtain a human nature? Could he just rob the body and spirit of another person? Just bump them out of existence and sort of take over their body and soul? Well, that wouldn't do because all that you are is tied up with your body and soul. And if he did, wouldn't his identity be his identity would then be all wrapped up and confused with, with their identity. He was already a person, but he needed to have a true human body and a true human spirit or soul. Well, perhaps God could just create a body and a soul for him, just at nihilo, out of nothing, a new body and soul that would be his. God is certainly capable of doing that. In fact, he has done that. In those accounts we have of the Old Testament where uh, God uh, or angels came as men, they kind of had a temporary body that they were given to walk around in, and we don't know exactly how all that worked, but it was done. But there's a problem with that approach, which leads us to the second requirement that had to be met. Okay, there's, there's a problem with God just, like he made, he made Adam, he made out of the clay and formed a body for him, breathed into him the breath of life. Could God do that again and then bring Jesus into that body? It, that, there's a problem with that. What's the problem? Well, it was necessary for the Son of God to be fully related to us. That's the whole purpose of his coming in our flesh, that he was to represent us. If God made another body and breathes into a, a spirit of life, then that other body would, would be a separate human race. We're, like I mentioned this morning, we're all together as a human race of one family. So the whole purpose, you see, of his coming is, it says in his, Hebrews 2.14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. And verse 16 goes further, it says, For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. If God made another person out of the dust of the ground and started another, he would be starting another human race that was not connected with ours. So somehow this had to be overcome. Um, it, it, that, that was the problem. God, is, God was always very deliberate in making us in such a way that we all are connected to Adam. That's where life began. There's one, only one man that was made. You remember how God made Eve? He took a rib from Adam. He didn't breathe into another, take another pile of clay and form it into a woman and breathe into it. He took a rib and out of that formed the woman. God made Adam of the dust of the ground, but he made Eve out of Adam. 
not of more dust. And when he made Adam, he, he breathed life into him and gave him a spirit and soul, but he never did that again. He didn't do that with Eve. He doesn't do that with the children that come from them. No, the scriptures tell us that God also finished creating on the sixth day. And so he's not creating new spirits for all the people that come along after Adam and Eve. Somehow, the spirit or the soul, and we certainly are not told how, but is brought forth when our bodies are brought forth at the same time when life is conceived. This is contrary to what Greek philosophy says about the soul, and that has caused many people to assert that God does, does create new souls or spirits each time a person is born. But I think this is not in conformity to Scripture. If God created a new spirit or soul, that would mean that He either created something sinful now, because we're all conceived in sin now that we're fallen, or that we all fell right away. But we aren't all put to the test with the forbidden fruit and all those things. We're just a, a, a child at that point. So it would mean that God is still creating as well after the sixth day. So I don't think it's in agreement with Scripture to hold to what is called creationism. I think traducianism is a biblical way, the way where somehow the body and the spirit are brought to, into being when a child is conceived. But even if you don't agree with that, and there's many good people that don't and think that each soul was created, it would still be the case that if God had made a separate body for Jesus that was not made of the substance of another person, Jesus would not be related to us. He would be an alien human race and not able to represent our human race. He would certainly not be of the seed of Abraham, would he? He would not be of the seed of the woman, as the prophecy said that he would, or the seed of David, as he was to come from David. He would be, uh, this would be contrary to God's word. So he had to be a son born of us, from us, and yet, as we saw, a, new per- a person already existing that is given this human nature. So then, the so so uh, his being born of our substance and truly related to us in both body and soul leads to the third huge problem that has to be overcome, or the requirement that's necessary. Third, he had to also be without sin. Now we're getting into great difficulty. Related to us of our substance, and yet not sharing our sin that we propagate as we bring forth children in the, in, by ordinary generation. So what can be done here? We've seen that we all share in sin together in a way that would be unacceptable for Christ is our Redeemer. Our human nature since the fall has been a sinful human nature. We were not made that way, but now that Adam has fallen, we are all conceived and born in sin. David confesses it in Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now you know that when Christ went to the cross, he did indeed bear the guilt of our sin and was punished for it. As one of us, he suffered for the corporate problem of human sin. 
But that is not the same as being a sinful and corrupt being himself, which he was not, and which he could not be if he was to be our redeemer. For him to redeem us, it was necessary that he not be a sinful and corrupt being. And you know, I hear this today. They did a survey in the church a while back. Did Jesus ever sin? And people said, well, yes, of course he did. Everybody sins. That's completely wrong. That's heresy. The Bible insists that he, he was distinct from us in this very way. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28 makes it clear that he could not be a sinful human being and it assures us that he was not. It says, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. I mean, how else can you say it? Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was without sin and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. He didn't have any sin. He didn't need to offer sacrifices for his own like they did. For, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Remember the lamb that they offered symbolically? It had to be without spot or blemish. That was saying something. That the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world would be without spot or blemish. So you see the difficulties that involved those three difficulties in bringing the Son of God into the world in human flesh. Let's review them. First, he had to obtain a human body and soul being a person that already existed. Second, it had to be a body or soul that was truly related to us of our very substance. And yet third, it could not be a body and soul that was corrupted by this sin that, that is all of ours. So what do the scriptures say? Well, let, they tell us how God brought forth his son into our flesh in a way that met all the requirements. The testimony of what God did is given to us in Luke 1, 26 through 38. And that's our scripture reading today. I, I, I waited a long time to get the scripture reading, didn't I? I don't always have the scripture reading right at the beginning. I think it's um, sometimes helpful to have it a little later on. So this is um, uh, the testimony of God's word from Luke 1, 26 through 38. So give attention as I read it to you. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? 
And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. This passage shows us plainly that Christ was born of a virgin. Is given great emphasis here. Her exact marital status is declared in verse 27. Twice she is called a virgin. She is said to be betrothed. Usually there was no sexual contact at all during betrothal. The way they were was much wiser in the way that they did marriages, where today it is all too common that there is sexual contact before marriage. But in their day, it was pretty much unheard of among the people of God, especially those who are in any way godly. It should be so among us. It says, let it not be once named among you, is what we're told in the New Testament. But to make it absolutely clear that she is a virgin, we are also shown Mary's question in verse 34. When told that she is going to have a son, she said, how can this be? since I do not know a man. Now, of course, this shows clearly that Mary was not just, she, didn't, she was not just thought to be a virgin by someone, but truly had never had sexual relations with a man. She says so. Mary was completely at a loss to know how she could have a child when she had never had involvement with a man. And think about it. She's with an angel. You don't lie to angels about things like that. (laughs) She is before the angel of God. What's more, look at what Gabriel says to her. He explains to her how this is going to be done. Luke 135. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit will form the body of Jesus in Mary. Perhaps we could almost say, except it's in a conceptional way, a conception way, almost similar to how God formed Eve from the rib of Adam, that somehow the Spirit, we're not told the mechanism. But surely if God could create man from the dust of the ground and then form a woman from his rib, from from the rib of the man, He could create a body from a woman in a kind of a pregnancy conception situation without a man's involvement. Gabriel goes on to tell Mary of another miraculous birth to stress that this is something that God will do by his supernatural power. Let me say too that before I read that verse that it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament that this birth would be a miraculous birth, that it would be expressly says of the seed of the woman that would come and bring forth our salvation, and that whenever God made promises to people like Abraham, 
that he brought forth a child to them that would be the, uh, the one that would bring forth this child in the future generations by a miraculous birth to a woman that was barren in that case. So look at Luke one thirty six where it talks about another miraculous birth. It says, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. This is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. And he adds the point then to tie it together that God can do anything. Luke one thirty seven. For with God, nothing will be impossible. So that emphasizes, this is a miracle. So when people say, I mentioned this morning about liberals who say, oh, well, it's not necessary to believe the virgin birth. These Bible scholar types that work in the universities and all this kind of stuff, they many times will, will espouse that. There was, there was a great division, actually, in the Presbyterian church back, I um, can't remember the dates now, uh, 100 years ago or so, or more than that now, I guess, uh, where they denied that it was necessary for ministers to affirm that Jesus was born of a virgin or that he was literally coming again. Different things like that. These could all be symbolic, they said, and it didn't matter whether, you really, whether it really happened or not. Well, here we're told very plainly that it did matter and that this is something that God did. It was a miracle. It wasn't just a story to sort of give us an illustration and inspire us or a parable or something like that. This was an actual fact that was necessary. It corresponds beautifully with a prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's some Bible versions that translate that young woman. And that is, it, it, it's true that the word means young woman, but the specific word that is used there was used of a woman who was a maiden, so to speak, and in those days, one who would always have been a virgin unless she was a very corrupt sort of a woman. And uh, th- so the prophecy is clearly referring to a virgin when it, when it says so. God's word is uh, very, very clear about the virgin birth. Sadly, though, there are many that deny it. It betrays a heart that doesn't want to accept a God for which nothing is impossible. If a person can't believe in the virgin birth, then they can't believe that Jesus is the Son of God either. Because that's even more marvelous. A virgin birth is one thing. For the Son of God to come in human flesh, that's an even greater thing. Uh, Think about it. Which is a greater miracle? A virgin birth or the Son of God appearing in human flesh? What Isaiah says in Isaiah 8.20 certainly applies to those who deny the virgin birth. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And that's what led to some of the denominations eventually forming out of like the mainline Presbyterian church, like the OPC, different ones like that, because of these uh, affirmations that, we didn't, that those things weren't necessary. If a person has no light, he shouldn't be in the office of a minister. It's absurd to accept such a person as a qualified minister, yet it's done all the time. The neo-Orthodox people reject things like this, saying that it doesn't matter what you believe about it. It does indeed matter. A virgin birth overcomes all the difficulties involved with the Son of God coming in our flesh. Let's look at how it overcomes all three difficulties. First, 
The virgin birth enables him as a pre-existing divine person to become a man without making a new person. This person who is the son of God had to acquire human flesh. And Gabriel makes it clear that this is just what happened when Jesus was born. Look at uh, in Luke one thirty-five. Gabriel speaks of the Holy One who is to be born. Isn't that an interesting way? He doesn't say the one who is born will be holy, but the Holy One is going to be born. This person who is holy and divine is going to be born. That's what is being, being said there. This way of speaking suggests that he is one who is already alive, a pre-existing person who is going to be born of this woman. The angel says that the one called the Holy One is now to be born. This, of course, is shown to be the case in Scripture again and again as Jesus himself speaks repeatedly of coming down from heaven, says such things like that, to do the will of him who sent me. And you don't say that if you weren't already existing. Like John uh, 6.38 says that. And Hebrews 10.5 speaks of God preparing a body for him when he came into the world. So you will notice as well back in Luke one thirty one how Gabriel tells Mary that he is to be called Jesus, which is also instructive in this matter. Because Jesus, that name, it means Jehovah or Yahweh, Yeshua is the other way to say it, uh, to say Jesus, that it means Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves. It's God's divine name. It's used over and over again in the Old Testament to distinguish God from all that is not God. God, the self-existing one. Jesus, it means I am that I am, and it speaks of him as this one from eternity who alone is uncreated. It's used to refer to him as the one who saves his people. He is constantly distinguished as the only one who can save. Only the Lord can save. Simply having this name certainly does not prove that the one who has this name is himself Jehovah who saves. Joshua or Yeshua in the Old Testament was the name of the man that uh, took them into, into Canaan. Uh, he, is the, he has the same name in the Old Testament. And of course, Joshua is not Jehovah, but was given this name to point to the Lord Jehovah who is doing the saving. But when we put this together with what it says in Matthew, it makes it clear that the one born to Mary is one, the one who is actually doing the saving as the Lord God. Matthew one twenty one says of Mary that she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He is called Jesus not because his Lord saves his people, but because he himself is the Lord who saves his people. They are his people. Add to this the fact that in Luke 1, Gabriel also says that the one who is born to Mary will be called the son of the highest. And in verse 34, that he will be called the son of God. He will be called the son of God because he will truly be the Son of God. But you see that He is said to be born of her. There we go. The Holy One to be born of Mary. 
And that brings us to the next thing that was required of the one who was to redeem us. Second, the virgin birth enables our Redeemer to be truly of our substance. Gabriel saying that the Son of God would be born to Mary shows that he was made of her, truly of her substance. We might even say her flesh and her spirit, her flesh in that way. This is emphasized in Galatians 4.4 where it says, God sent forth his son born of a woman. The word translated born there itself carries the idea of made, that he was made of a woman. Though he was God's son, he was truly born of woman or made of her substance, of her flesh. In Luke one thirty-two, Gabriel says that he will be of the flesh of David, David's seed according to the flesh. He says that God will give him the throne of his father, David. By calling David his father, he shows that this one who is the son of God was also the son of David. As God had expressed it to Abraham, the son of the promise would be one who would come from where? What did God say to Abraham? From your own body. Remember when Abraham was wondering if he was one of his servants? And God said, no. It'll be the one that comes from your body. And as he expressed it to David, that he would be the seed after you who will come from your body. 2 Samuel 7, 12 uses that same phrase, from your body. So you see that this one who is born is the pre-existing son of God, but he is also born of the substance of human flesh. A true child of Mary and of David and of Abraham, yet the Son of God. And now the third requirement. Okay, how is he going to be without sin if he comes from sin? Sin begets sin. Sinful people bring forth sinful people. So how is that going to work? Well, third, the virgin birth enables him to be born of us yet without sin. He could not be born in sin like his father David had been. You saw David admitted, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. After Adam fell, the rule for them from then on was that in Adam all are born in sin. The pattern is seen in Genesis 5 that Adam begot a son after his own likeness, after his image. In other words, Adam's son, like Adam, was a sinner. The virgin birth made it possible for the Son of God to be conceived without sin. The rule is that sin is transmitted through the Father. And Adam all die. We beget what we are, sinners. But in this case, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary rather than a man by conception bringing forth a child with her. The Spirit overshadows Mary not to form a new person as is done in an ordinary conception with a father, but only to form a human body and soul for a person who already existed, who already had a character, which was a holy character. So you don't have someone being brought forth from others that is a sinner, but you have a person who is not a sinner being given a body and a soul that is of the true substance of the woman. So the virgin birth made it possible for the son to be conceived without sin. Um. This is what Gabriel tells Mary in verse 35. 
And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, we don't know just how the Holy Spirit did this. But I would suggest again that it was surely something similar to what God did when Eve was formed from the rib of Adam. Body and soul was made from Mary, but in this case, a person was not made of Mary. Only a body and soul was made of her substance, a human body and soul for a pre-existing son of God. The one who acquired this body was a person who had been around from all eternity, the son of God. The same eye who created the world was now born of a woman's substance. Same eye, same individual, but he was a person who was holy. Hebrews 7.26, a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. This is why in Luke one thirty five Gabriel calls him that holy one who is to be born. Unlike all other sons who are born with sinful human flesh, this one would, be, would not be sinful, but holy in the fullest sense, called the Holy One. He would be a person who is already holy, who would now be given a body of Mary's substance and David's substance and Abraham's servant substance. So my dear brothers and sisters, you can see what all this means. It means that we have a Redeemer who meets all the requirements of a divine Redeemer. A Redeemer who is truly God, yet truly man of our own flesh, and yet our flesh without sin. This is what God has graciously provided for us. But why does it, why does it matter? Why has God told us how Jesus was brought forth as much as he has? Some people want to know more. He hasn't told us more. But why has he told us that which he has told us? Why did God bother to reveal that he was born of a virgin? Well, surely it was to show us how special our Lord Jesus is so that we would love him more and so that we would more fully trust him. Because we know that he is truly God in our flesh, it means that, first of all, we can see God when we see him. We can see God in a unique way when we see Christ enfleshed. The person who lived among us and walked among us is none other than the very Son of God walking around here. You might remember in John 14, 8, when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And then in John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? This person was God walking around uh, among us in our skin, in our flesh. In Jesus, we have an answer to the question, what would God be like if he were to be a man? I mean, he's God. He's up there running everything. What would he be like if he were here living among us? We have the perfect, we, we, we have that. In Jesus, we have an answer. It's, he would be exactly what Jesus is. When we read of him in the scriptures, we see his compassion. We see his unrelenting service. We see his wholesome words, controlled words, 
never, never out of control. His patience, his absolute commitment to the Father, his meekness, his faith, and dependence on God as one who is truly a man, his sub- submission to God, his reliance on the Holy Spirit. He had to rely on the Holy Spirit just like we do. His prayers, his worship, we see his wisdom, we see his grace, we see his love. He is altogether lovely. We gain a greater knowledge of God by looking at Jesus incarnate. Looking at him informs us of our loving Father in heaven so that we can have more delight in him and more fervent worship and praise of him. But not only does he show us the Father, he also shows us what we ought to aspire to become. And you see, you can't say, well, he's, he's the Son of God, so it's out of reach for us. No, he's the Son of God in our flesh, which is, who is a perfect example for us. Since he truly came in the flesh, he is an example of all that a human being ought to be. His compassion, his unrelenting service, his wholesome words, his patience, his absolute commitment to the Father, his meekness, his faith and dependence on God, his submission to God, his reliance on the Holy Spirit, his prayers, his worship, his wisdom, his grace, his love. All of these are examples that we ought to, of how we ought to seek to live. He told us that we should love as he loved. He told us that we should serve as he has served us. He is a perfect example of what it means to obey God's commandments. And as a perfect example, he is also, this is really, really encouraging, he is an example of what we shall be. What we shall be when we get to glory and he completes his transforming work in us. The potential is in in all of us by God's work to be like Christ. We will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. He is truly one of us in human nature. And what he is, we shall be. We will keep our unique personalities. But we will have the same love for God. The same love for each other. The same service. The same beauty that we see in him. What a glorious hope this is for us to be told, to hold on to as we struggle with our remaining corruption of sin as long as we're in this world. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, God shows us that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, that we might look to Him with all confidence to be our Savior from our sins. He is perfectly suited to be our Redeemer. He is truly one of us, truly of the substance of Mary, and so of the substance of all of us. Okay, we're all connected to Jesus Christ a true human being, and yet he is also the very Son of God who inhabits eternity. The Son of God who came as our Redeemer, the Holy One born of Mary. He is perfectly suited to do all that we need for salvation. Remember again the two things. First, he is able to wash away the guilt of our sin by his holy sacrifice. As one of us, He was able to represent us as the Son of God when He offered Himself on the cross. He was able to pay the full penalty of our sin. You're completely forgiven if you look to this Redeemer. If you do not, 
There's no way for you to be forgiven. Not at all. You'll have to spend eternity in hell, cut off from God in torment forever. He came into this world in our flesh just so he could give his life a ransom to save us. He couldn't do that in the divine nature. He had to become of our substance, but he had to also still be one who is worthy to be God. Second, he is able to wash away our rebellion. Okay, so that was our guilt. He's able to wash away our rebellion. As the Son of God, he lived a perfect life in our flesh. And as the Son of God, he has the power to transform us and recreate us in God's likeness. As a man, he is able to make this divine power accessible to us by uniting himself with us. We looked at that in more detail before. He himself is the Christ, the anointed one, because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure as a man. And then as our head and husband, he pours out his Holy Spirit on all of us who come to him for eternal life, that is. The Spirit transforms us so that we become like Jesus. He does it little by little as we learn of Jesus and grow. And he will complete the work in all who are truly joined to Jesus, united to his body by faith. I remember a number of years ago, I was so encouraged when I was reading in John Owen's book on the Holy Spirit. And he laid out so clearly from Scripture how that Jesus, when he was in human flesh, had to be filled with the Spirit in order to be the human being that he had to be, that he needed to be. He didn't, we're not complete without the Holy Spirit working in us. Neither was Jesus, because he was a true human in human flesh. So he relied upon the Holy Spirit. The Scripture says it over and over again. And we are partakers of the Spirit as well. The potential is there. God has shown us that the Son of God really did come into the world, not as one only appearing to be in our flesh, but as a true kinsman redeemer. It is such a remarkable thing that anything like this should ever have been done. But it truly was done. That Holy One who was born of Mary truly was the Son of God. He is what you need, each one of you. Put your trust in Him and rejoice. Please stand. O Lord our God, we marvel when we see what You have done in bringing Jesus Christ into the world, in our flesh of all things, that He became truly one of us. And therefore, He is able to represent us before You, to die for our sins. And He's also able to be a remarkable example for us, an example of one that that we can truly become like. And besides all that, we're able to see you through him revealed to us in a way that we can see what you're like. We see what you're like if you became one of us. And truly, Father, we see the humility and the meekness that as a man that is what you are when you become human flesh. We praise you, O Lord, for such an example And we pray, Lord, that we would aspire to be like him, knowing that there is hope and that we will be like him. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. 
And Father, we pray that we would be ever growing, ever growing more like him. Lord, we have such a long way to go, but your power is so great. Your promises are so full and true and rich. We pray, Lord, that you would visit us. You would visit us with your Son, with your Spirit, uniting us to him and bringing forth blessing to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive his blessing. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.